This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Holy cow. We're recovering from the great state of the union. Were you able to get popcorn and watch it all night? Uh, no. <laughs> I had a meeting. I was busy. You were busy. I had a meeting, too. I was I was teaching, my hopefully, my final class that I teach. When I, <sighs> then I came home and I read about it, and people were happy with it, and other people were not. Just you know, like every other it's one, right? so weird. Yeah. It's like... The Republicans couldn't stand it, but the Democrats thought it was fantastic. It's the weirdest thing. It was fun watching Paul Ryan. Uh-huh. What did Paul say? Just watching him sit back yeah. there during some of the <laughs> moments, like, when do I clap? When do I don't? Does That's he take, a bad position. Does he take cues from the audience when he's watching his fellow Republicans? Are they clapping? He's right. still working because he kind of has a little snarky look. Like, yeah. mm, they all kind of have a snarky look. But you got to practice that. Because you don't want to look like you're a jerk. Right. And you, there's certain things you could applaud for. Yeah. But I don't know. You can't win in that position. No. Because someone's going to criticize you doing something in favor of or against something. And Yeah. You, yeah. Did you hear what uh, um, Theodore Cruz said? Theodore Cruz. What did he say? He said – uh, he did not attend. It's more of a state of denial than a state of the union. There you go. I liked parts of it. I really liked the part about we've got to do something about our democracy. I mean, about our politics. That's I like that. I liked about the polarization of it. Yeah, we're way yeah. too polarized. We got to change the system. We also got to get more people involved. But the thing about the State of the Union is it's just a lot of really hopeful. Oh yeah, statements and a lot of it's like you know I want to do this. Well, that's great. Guess what? We're not going to let you. Yeah. Or, I want to have a or even hoverboard. Just, like they talk, there's who was it? President Bush in his last one of one of the ones that uh, one of the State of the Unions. President Bush talked about going to Mars. Oh yeah, and of course that's on hold or in the process of or if we ever actually get there. But they have these like huge, long, really lofty ideals and <laughs> ideas they're trying to push, and it's like great. Like like Joe Biden's in charge of cancer now. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, for, well, for a year. What's he going to get done in? Well, it's about time America solves the cancer problem. Why not us? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Why not? I mean, cancer's been here a lot longer than a lot of our other problems. Yeah. He he managed to also, you know, hit a few people with statements, comments. He made a comment about carpet bombing. Apparently... Not not the the best foreign policy. Some people don't think that's good foreign policy. A little massive carpet bombing. Let's listen to some of his clips. Um, just just a bunch of issues. Let's let's actually get to clip one. Obama speaks out against Islamophobia, and that's why we need to reject any politics that targets people because of race or religion. This is not a matter of political correctness. This is a matter of understanding just what it is that makes us strong. Yeah. I cut out some of the, well, all of the applause. It sounds like he's speaking through a can. Yeah. There's some audio issues. It was, it was The can uh, string can issue. C-SPAN didn't have the best audio. Yeah. I moved on to uh, Politico and New York Times because they had better 
you found the audio. Yeah. Uh, he started the entire thing about, uh, you know, with a little joke about Iowa. Tonight marks the eighth year that I've come here to report on the State of the Union. And for this final one, I'm going to try to make it a little shorter. Yes. Woo. I know some of you are answering to get back to Iowa. That's pretty funny. He got a laugh. People clapped. Paul Ryan behind him. I think he received his you know thumbs up from somebody, so he clapped and in support. So is um, is Joe is Joe really in charge of cancer? According to the president, yes. You know, last year, Vice President Biden said that with a new moonshot, America can cure cancer. Last month, he worked with this Congress to give scientists at the National Institutes of Health the strongest resources that they've had in over a decade. So tonight I'm announcing a new national effort to get it done. And because he's gone to the mat for all of us on so many issues over the past 40 years, I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, what more would you want as a vice president of a lame duck presidency? And they went in a little bit more in depth on that. It's basically they're trying to free up the communication lines with who has yeah. the research data versus the researchers and try to get all those people talking because apparently they're... That's what Joe found out. There's a lot of silos. Yeah. And so they're separated and he wants to get that information to everyone. So well, it's, a, it's a step forward. And uh, he'd be great at that, right? Yeah. Just go and bring... Hey, I've got a letter from this other cancer institute. It's all the, it's all the, it's all the special secrets they know. It's kind of the, the same thing they did with... Well, they're still trying to do with... Uh, FBI, Homeland Security, all these different yeah. agencies, how they're supposed to communicate. They still really eh, don't, but that's, that's the idea. Yeah. It's way hard. So anyway, a great night. And uh, Barack, we need to take on ISIS. I mean, it's, it was everything. But it, to me, a lot of this seemed like he was trying to pave the way to the future. Like this seemed more like, hey, this is what the future could look like too, which I thought that was kind of hopeful. Right. I don't know. I liked it. Talked about the economy that it's it's positive. Anyone saying something else is wrong, and you know yeah. where, where there is problems. And he acknowledged that a lot of that has to do with technology, yeah, and how it's advancing. And because we can do things cheaper, we can replace people with technology. We just have to figure out a way to get those people back to work. And honestly, too, I thought I heard something I had never heard before. He he, President Obama said his biggest regret is that he didn't do he couldn't do more. To, like, bring the two sides together. Yeah. I don't know how he said it. He was more eloquent, of course. But Well, he has someone writing for him. Oh, that's true. Yeah. His, his speechwriter is much yeah. more eloquent. <laughs> but he, he, he actually stated that that was a regret. And somebody else like a Lincoln mm-hmm. could have probably done more to bring these sides together. But he also said in the end it's not going to be about a president. So you get rid of me, you're still going to have the same problems. I, I, we have to address that. And some of that, I think, is going to get just into campaign re- finance reform, all these other issues that make us so messed up. There were no events last night. There was no yeah. no one catcalled. There it, was someone that was like going, yes, during some of that uh, uh, religious yeah, right. discrimination. There was, there was some like person, somebody yes! was cheering. But, uh, yeah, most of, most of it was quiet, that's non-eventful, good. which is kind of boring. You want something no, to happen. I mean, that's, that's – <laughs> You want a Supreme Court justice falling asleep in the front row? Well, they, I'm you sure that was happening. Something to happen, or one of them, like yeah, falling you know, sleep, you know, slipping down in their robes, yeah. to the ground. Um, the NFL, the Rams are going back to L.A. Oh, that's cool. Sad for St. Louis. I mean, I guess I don't know everything that went on there, but yeah, 
I was a Ram fan growing up. Wasn't it the Young Blood brother? Young Blood? I don't know. They they were the they were the linemen. The Young Bloods. I think that was their name. The fierce. What was it? Pat the, Hayden uh, was my favorite quarterback of all time. Hmm. Now he's the USC um, athletic director. athletic director that fires people on the tarmac. <laughs> who's probably about to lose his job if this next guy doesn't make it happen. <laughs> so that's cool. The Rams are going back, and I guess if the Rams don't want it, the Raiders get it. I mean, there's like a lineup. Well, I guess the way it's worked is the the Rams from St. Louis are moving to LA. LA. Okay, they're going to be in a stadium. Yeah. Now, one of two teams will join them, either the Chargers or the Oakland Raiders. To share the stadium. To share, and the stadium's like a $1.7 billion. But it's a build. It's a whole new stadium. Whole new stadium. It's kind of like the Giants and the Jets are sharing a stadium. Yeah. That's cool. And so San Diego— So one team's going to be left out. San Diego will move. If San Diego doesn't want to move, then the Oakland Raiders can move. Okay. That's well, kind of the well, way it works. I thought San Diego for sure wanted it. It was supposed to be Oakland and San Diego in this stadium— but they've said that the pecking order now, Oakland can stay. Yeah. And whatever team doesn't move, they get $100 million from the league for stadium improvements. Because that's really what uh, this comes okay. down to is the stadium isn't generating enough money. Wow. Three cities are hanging in the balance. The most important thing of the entire city, football, <laughs> hanging. Three cities. Yeah. The NFL has a lot of power. They do. Well, I, like <sighs> I was telling you with these – uh, playoff football games over the weekend, they were generally bad football games. Yeah, but great ratings. And, but the ratings, each one averaged over 25 million viewers, Woo! which blows everything else off the map when it comes to TV that ratings. That almost equals, that's that's even higher than a debate. I, I would be interested to see what the combined rating of the State of, U- the, the, State of the Union was last night, because it's on all these different oh, networks, yeah, that's right? True, that's true. This should have been huge. Yeah. I'd give it a. I, I bet it. I bet it easily cleared nine million. <laughs> How many people just avoided TV at all? That's right. I can't do this. Well, that's really cool. And then I'm sure you'll get to it in the news. Um, are you going to be talking about the sailors in yes. Iran? Okay. Yes. Well, let's just do that. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Right what's going up around the world? Thanks, Matt. Two U.S. Navy patrol boats and their crews were freed early this morning uh, to, in international waters after being detained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard who say they entered uh, Iranian territory. The detained U.S. Marines, after it was realized that their entry into Iran's territorial waters was unintentional and after the Marines apologized, were released to international waters in the Persian Gulf, according to a statement on Iran's state-run news channel. The, the crews were seized Tuesday in a stretch between Bahrain and Kuwait, reportedly following me- mechanical problems near Iran's uh, Farsi Island naval base. A Revolutionary Guard spokesman said the sailors were held under good conditions and with, quote, Islamic compassion, according to the New York Times. Islamic compassion. That's what it says. Okay. I'm not sure what that means, but... They, how, how did they... How did they get off course? The mechanical problems, and they... they Both of them? Both boats? I well, guess one boat, and then one boat was helping. And one stayed with them, and okay. then they floated into, you know, the, the wrong place. Can't and they you got see them rowing up. with oars, like, oh, yeah, no, get like, away, get away, get yeah. away from the shore, get away from the shore. And there's video of them just kind of hanging out in the uh, room and just waiting. It was just a process yeah. of figuring it out. It happens. Uh, President Obama's final State of the Union address received very positive reviews from 53% of participants in a CNN poll. That was conducted Tuesday night. The poll found that 20% of people who watched the speech had somewhat positive reaction. 25% had a negative reaction. When it came to Obama's proposed policies, 68% said they would move the U.S. in the right direction, while 29% said they would move the country in the wrong direction. 
Last year, 72% said his policies were heading in the right direction, the highest of his presidency. Mm. Wow. So, positive reaction to what he said last night. Uh, This is more for you and me, I think. I'm not sure exactly who's actually watched this, but Stephen Avery has filed to have his murder conviction appealed by the Wisconsin Court of Appeals in a motion made public on Tuesday. This is from the murder... Making the Making making of a Murderer on uh, Netflix. Avery says that the search warrant that collected evidence of uh, Teresa Halbach's murder was not valid because it only covered a single property, but multiple properties were searched by the law by oh, law are enforcement. Are you kidding? They violated a Avery said order. that the murder conviction cannot stand as an alternate juror was improperly seated after deliber- deliberations began following the closing arguments, but Avery's defense counsel consented to that alternate jury being juror being seated. So there's yeah. things. <laughs> they still are on it. That's more because Matt and I watch TV and mm-hmm. it's a continuing story. You haven't finished that, have you? Oh, I'm done. Yeah. Oh, you're done? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know all about the... Have you been I've, searching more about no, it or looking I haven't, at it? I haven't. My I, wife comes up with stuff like every couple of days. Like, oh, he's so innocent. You, know? <laughs> you don't know. That's right. The price of oil fell below $30 a barrel on Tuesday for the first time in 12 years. This is the seventh day in a row of losses for oil that comes on top of an 18% loss since the beginning of the year. Plummeting prices are blamed on weak economic demand in China and rising value of the U.S. dollar. I was listening to a report. They uh, people are people in the know, experts in whatever the mm-hmm. commodity business is, point to the the uh, dipping below twenty dollars a barrel. Wow! And then they start thinking, how does that affect the U.S. economy? Yeah, because the oil industry here would really suffer as they already are. Free but they oil. Would suffer even, free it, oil. Almost to the point of free oil. Except for the taxes. So then really all you're paying for is are the oil taxes. Possibly. How great will that be the day that the oil is free but the taxes aren't? Well, there's a point where it doesn't make any sense for your economy when there's yeah. a huge chunk of it that no one's paying. Well, and so think about this is hurting Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana, the right. Gulf Coast. Mm. Oh, the tangled web. Right when we get ahead, we actually are, you know, just chewing off our own foot. Hey, uh, interesting topic coming up. You've heard us. In fact, we've even mentioned the fact that some of the research uh, recently seems to claim that uh, religion and religious attendance and belief in religion is fading with some of this, these younger generations. So we wanted to tackle that and go a little deeper with that. Joining us in just a few minutes is Dr. Rodney Stark, who um, is really a leading expert and sociologist of religion. And he's going to be talking about the fact that it's actually a myth that uh, the world religions are are stronger than ever. So don't believe we're no longer believers. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be talking about the triumph of faith and uh, religion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for years, experts have forewarned and predicted uh, about the, about the decline in religious um, uh, beliefs and in the and in attention to uh, religious issues. Going to church, you know, becoming a part of uh, a religion, actively being involved in a religion, and uh, you know, we've even talked about it here on the show. With the millennials, are also being shown to maybe be less, uh, uh, you know, active in their faith, 
And so we wanted to bring on a guest, uh, one of the leading researchers on the subject. His name is Dr. Rodney Stark. He's a leading expert and sociologist of religion. He explores the myth of religious decline in his book, The Triumph of Faith, Why the World is More Religious Than Ever. And uh, Dr. Stark claims, contrary to the constant predictions that religion is doomed, there is an abundant evidence of an ongoing worldwide religious awakening. He joins us now to discuss his research in religious growth and what it means for our uh, spiritual and religious future. Dr. Rodney Stark, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Delighted to be with you. Great to have you. And fact or fiction, um, religion on the decline overall? No, it's... The world has probably never been as religious as it is now. Really? What, what, what's that based on? I mean, I, you hear a lot. I hear a lot about religion, but a lot of what I hear about, you know, is Islam uh, as a religion. Talk about what, the, the evidence that you're seeing. Well, first of all, I, I was enormously lucky. Um, the, the Gallup organization uh, gave me the privilege of access to a wonderful body of data they've been collecting. It's called the Gallup Whirlpool. Hmm. Started in 2005, and by now it consists of annual national surveys in 163 nations. That's 98% of the world's population. And what it shows is, uh, okay, let me just give you a couple of findings. 81% of the people on Earth claim to belong to one of the organized religious faiths, and many of the others claim to be attending worship services regularly. Mm. 74% say that religion is an important part of their daily lives. 50% say they've been at a religious service in the past seven days. Wow. Atheists are simple, almost non-existent in most parts of the world. 5% uh, uh, this kind of a top figure uh, um, in the majority of nations, um, including the United States, for example, in, in 1944, Gallup asked a national sample of Americans if they believed in God, and 4% said no. Last year, 4% said no. Hmm. So Holding steady. Where is the great yeah, increase in, in that? Wow. But <clears throat> the fact is that somehow or another, uh, bad news is the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it in my life as a as, as a reporter at major metro, metropolitan dailies, and the idea was that uh, man bites uh, dog bites man isn't a story. Man bites dog is a story. Yeah, bad news was always preferred. I mean, you know, what we need is good airplane crash. I can remember an editor saying, <laughs> "Yeah, where's our airplane crash?" <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, that. That all the planes landed safely wasn't a story. Mm, and, that's true. and it's the same in the, in the religious sphere. If somebody comes along and says, uh, you know, the millennials are fleeing the church, mm-hmm. that's a big story. If I come along and say it isn't true, somehow that's not a story at all. But the fact is, in the book, I have a table that justifies this claim about the millennials. Uh, it does show national sample that people under 30 are substantially less likely to go to church than people over 30. And uh, I suppose, uh, you know, the problem is the data that I'm using there are from 1980. Hmm. Church attendance didn't go down. What it means is simple. 
that as long as we've been collecting data, we've found that people under 30 are not as good church members as older people. That is to say they sleep in Sunday morning. Yeah. They're recovering from Saturday. They go to church. That's so true. That's (laughs) true. This has been going on as long as I've been looking at data, but somehow you can't get the point through that, don't worry about it, (laughs) they didn't leave the church. They're just sleeping in. They're sleeping in, and then they'll have kids in about 10 years, and then they'll be getting up early. Right. They're not antagonistic to the church, and they're not fleeing anything. Hmm. They're just, you know... This is kind of a normal pattern that you can expect to see. Is is the pattern the same um, in the United States as it is uh, across the world? I could see, you know, African countries growing in religion. I mean, I see they where, yes. you know, but so is it is it declining in the U.S. or not at all, really? No, uh, church attendance hasn't hasn't flickered in this country in the last 50 years. Now that's for for religious folk. That's pretty good information, right? Well, you know, there's something else that's kind of important here. Is that um, every ten years, a bunch of statisticians get together and look at church yearbooks and try to account the number of churches in every county in the United States and and the number of church members. And this always comes up at around fifty percent, whereas. Opinion polls show people about 70% claiming to belong to a local church. And so it's always said, look at how people lie about belonging to a church. Well, you know, we've been out looking in a few counties just to check this out. And so far, in every county we've looked at, the official counts of churches are off by about 30%. Hmm. And these aren't just a bunch of little... uh, storefronts that are being missed here in McClellan County. We found a church of 3,000 that had been missed. Oh, wow. So what happens, of course, is they're working from church yearbooks, and a lot of churches aren't in church yearbooks because they're non-denominational evangelical uh, congregations, or or their their particular denomination is so new nobody is by yeah. come look at them. That... And uh, so there's... <clears throat> Basically, uh, you know, if you're if you're for religion, it's mostly good news, and of course, that's <laughs> hard to get into the newspaper. No, I absolutely, and it it seems like you know as as the world is shifting, as you can do more things online, as you can, uh, it just seems like the options for what constitutes a church are even changing. You don't have to just be, um, you can be a non-denominational, but of a very special kind of specialized type of church that fits your style more than ever before. Yeah, well, Americans particularly have the have the opportunity to shop around, and they do, which is another reason that people talk about the decline of church is that there are de- the so-called mainline isn't any longer the mainline. It's been declining like mad. I mean, we're talking about the so-called liberal denominations, the United Church of Christ, the the Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, they've been declining uh, enormous. I mean, they've really gone down in the last 50, 60 years. But the people didn't stay home. They went somewhere else. They went to other churches, other religions. Because Americans have got that option. And if they go to church and they don't like what's there, they go someplace else. And the problem with the liberal churches is that mostly they forgot the whole church when the people got there. Hmm. It's it really is. I guess it's a testament to to the belief in God that, you know, if if I'm not getting it where I am, I'm going to go find it wherever I can. Right. 
And the, and the reason, by the way, the church attendance is low in Europe is because they don't have the options. You know, there are state churches most places, and uh, they're pretty lazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, lazy they, they, churches don't bring in members. You got to go. You got to work at it. That's you so gotta, true. You got to offer something when they get there. But in Germany, the the clergy are civil servants, and uh, it says in their labor contract they have a union. Wow. It says in their contract that if fewer than eight people show up, you don't have to preach. Well, I don't know about you, but if I were a preacher in Germany, I'd give really rotten yeah. sermons. <laughs> I, I was a preacher in Argentina, and we were glad if eight people showed up. <laughs> I mean, we were excited, and we'd do whatever it took. That's interesting. Well, Talk about the rest of the countries, Dr. Stark. What? Where is the growth in the world religiously? Where? Well, there, where is it happening? There's some enormous things going on. Latin America, it used to be that they said it was a, uh, 100% Catholic, and of course it wasn't. Very few people went to church. Then the Protestants got down there and started recruiting like crazy. And what do you know? The Catholic Church responded effectively with the Catholic Charismatic Movement. And in Latin America today, Catholic mass attendance is astonishing. We're talking 60 and 70 percent a week in most of those wow. countries. That's, you know, it used to be 15. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, Sub Saharan Africa is overwhelmingly Christian, like, like, like 90, 95 percent. And they go to church two, three times a week. Uh, and then there's China. There are more Christians in China today than there are members of the Communist Party. <laughs> and they're growing at a rate that if it keeps on, in another 15 years, there'll be more Christians in China than in anywhere else in the world. Right now, there are about 100 million. Uh, where, where are they getting their church? I mean, I, I thought churches weren't allowed in China. Well, they weren't at one time, but they are now. And, and you know, they've rebuilt tens of thousands of uh, of Chinese folk temples and hmm. uh, Buddhist temples and Confucian temples and all that sort of thing. But the, the Christians are growing. And uh, something else that people don't seem to understand Religion doesn't appeal to the most uneducated, poorest sector of the population, but to the best educated and to the and to the more affluent. And in China, it's the best educated. If you, if you want to find a really Christian environment in in China, go to the their best universities. Hmm. Wow, and, uh, it's so counter traditional thought, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, the poor, yeah, not the is, rich. But, but but it shouldn't have been. I right. mean, uh, uh, as long as I've been, you know, sociologist of religion, we've all known that uh, church attendance was was positively related to education and income. Um, but you know, somehow the word doesn't get out. And of course, remember the anti-religious people like to say, "Well, it's only dumb bunnies that go to church." Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, but I'm sorry. It's, yeah. That's not the way it is. Well, that's that's that's. I think it's fantastic news. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Rodney Stark. We're going to take a break. Dr. Stark will be back. He is the distinguished professor of the social sciences at Baylor University also co-director of the university's Institute for Studies of Religion and the founding editor of the Interdisciplinary Journal on Research on Religion. Folks, he's telling us it's a myth that uh, religion is fading. In fact, not true. It's strong and steady 
And uh, we'll come back, continue this uh, interesting dialogue around uh, the triumph of faith. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Rodney Stark. Uh, He is the author of the book, The Triumph of Faith, Why There is Abundant Evidence of an Ongoing Worldwide Religious Awakening. Dr. Stark uh, is um, the distinguished professor of uh, religious, I think it's religious sociology from Baylor University and and social sciences. He's the co-director of the university's Institute for Studies of Religion, uh, incredibly well-published, really, um, a world-renowned expert in religion. And he's telling us, hey, we got it wrong. We, we, we've heard many claims that religion may be in decline, and it's not. It's, you know, some people are just going to different churches that maybe aren't being measured. Some are just staying home, some of the younger generation. They're not necessarily becoming... Not you know non-religious, they're just sleeping in, and so we appreciate Dr. Rodney Stark being back with us. Thank you again. Delighted to be with you. This is to me so fascinating because you know BYU, religious or religious school and a religious organization, and sometimes you wonder. I've visited there many times. Have you? Have you? And and Baylor too. I mean, it's like we're in this weird fight where, like you were saying, you don't get media attention for the good stuff. All we hear is any potential decline, and you're you're basically confronting that with your new book, Triumph of Faith. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, the fact is the evidence is heavily on on the side of uh, of religious growth. Uh, uh, the fact is, wherever you look around, I mean, <clears throat> and and there are just so many myths out there that just need to be exploded. For example, uh, we're we're constantly being told that Islam is outgrowing Christianity, will soon overtake it. And that's complete nonsense. It's based on way out-of-date data, which used to be the case that uh, um, Muslim fertility was much higher Mm -hmm. than, say, Christian fertility. But it isn't any longer. Uh, In Iran, for example, they're they're below replacement level, and and so are they in some some other... uh, uh, Muslim countries. Uh, and anyway, they are simply not going to uh, uh, out-reproduce Christians. And the fact is that there's not a lot of conversion to Islam, and there's an enormous amount of conversion going on to Christianity. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's astonishing the levels uh, that, that, uh, that one finds uh, around the world. I mean, there, there won't be much more conversion in sub-Saharan Africa, because everybody's already been converted. <laughs> They're all there, uh, but but then but then the reproduction rates are higher, right? So right. these and, Christian and communities the, the are having more children. That, uh, you know, the conversion going on in China is of massive uh, proportions, and, and Christianity out outnumbers uh, Islam about three and a half to two right now, and then that's not going to be reduced at all. 
Wow. Is what do you see happening kind of uh, locally in the United States when you talk about immigration and diversity is uh, as far as, you know, you know, ethnic groups, cultural groups, uh, um, what's happen? What happens to the religious? How, how are they broken down? Well, so far as we've come, nothing much has happened. Uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, there weren't very many Catholics in the United States, and today there are, of course, uh, uh, millions of Catholics. And uh, the Hispanic population has grown, and it tends to be Catholic, although certainly not exclusively. Uh, but these are not irreligious people coming in, and consequently nothing much has really happened. Hmm. Does it? Do you see any um, trends over the next five, ten, fifteen years? What do you do? You see anything? Any movements? Any anything happening religiously uh, with religions organized or some of those that are not even known yet? Well, the, the you know the, continuing the trends. Uh, uh, conservative groups are growing and liberal groups are declining, but that's been going on for a century or two. Uh, it'll continue. Uh, you know, if you want people to come to church, uh, you need to go out and find them and invite them and be energetic about it. And people in the conservative churches uh, will do that, and, and people in the more liberal churches tend not to uh, um, ask their neighbors to church, and consequently, the neighbors don't come to their church. Hmm. But uh, uh, no, it's it's you know there are a lot of variations around the country. One of the one of the things that I discovered years ago that was it was fascinating that might be interesting to your audience. Non Mormons in Utah attend church better than non-Mormons anywhere else in the United States. Really? Okay, so non-Mormons yeah. in the state of Utah yeah. are more, I mean, like, active uh, in their other churches? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's like uh, it's it, church attendance is contagious, is mm-hmm. as far as I'm saying. Yeah. And Mormons really go to church, so the non-Mormons in, in Utah really go to church. They're real churchgoers. No, but that's, that's actually—to me, that's— that's that's healthy. I guess that's what you're seeing too. I mean, in South America, right. if there's a revival of church going, that's great because any other church in South America would benefit from people going you know, to church. You know, it's uh, it's 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 made for look. Latin America historically re- relied almost entirely on foreign priests. The locals simply didn't go to seminary. Hmm. <clears throat> that's changed. Uh, Men in Latin America are now going to Catholic seminaries in droves, and they're able to staff the local Catholic churches in Latin America with locals. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, and um, talk about the difference going to church makes at all. Why does—what what really is the benefits that are seen from religious involvement? Well, there are a whole lot of them. For example— uh, you know, just little things. Uh, people who church attenders are much more apt to, to donate blood, for example. Hmm. They're much more apt to give money to charities, and not just to their church by any means, but to to, to any of the charities. Uh, uh, religious people, of course, are much less likely to get arrested and put in jail. <laughs> and the reason is they don't do the things that <laughs> that you get put in jail for. Uh, I mean, it's it's. 
So it's really po- uh, it's pro culture. It's, 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 it's pro. You, it's, yeah. They're more likely to read books and subscribe to newspapers. I mean, it's. Uh, they're involved. They're pol- and they're probably yeah. more likely to vote. They're probably more likely to be they politically are involved. They're more likely to vote. They're they're more likely to uh, uh, to do all of the civic things. It's uh, you know it's uh, it's. Uh, it really shouldn't be a secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a good sense should prevail. And the problem is, of course, it doesn't make news because uh, being being good to your neighbors and, and obeying the law isn't a news story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's almost kind of anti-news. It's almost like, yeah, because it's... Yeah, right. I mean, if you want to get in the, in the, in the, in the press, do something bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even on our radio show, it's hard to find – we try to find the good news and share it, except it's so much easier to just find criminal stories that did something stupid. Sure. Let's talk about uh, the the, the affl- affluent uh-huh. kid and, yeah. his, and his mother. You know, they're mm-hmm. a bunch of dippies, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, what about all the good kids out there? Yeah. And, and, and most of them are. So true. Well, Dr. Stark, we appreciate your great work, and um, I think it is. It is a good message uh, that needs to get out there. In the end, um, you're saying there's hope. It's it's actually the numbers are much better than anybody would think. It's 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 yeah. something that's growing It's and staying steady, at Religion least. Religion is, is alive and well. That's great news. Good stuff. Well, Dr. Rodney from Baylor University, thank you for joining us. I was delighted to be with you. Honored to have you. Keep up the great work. Um, truly, that's great news. And again, it, whether you are active and religious in and in your faith, whether you attend your church or not, folks, there's a lot of great benefits that come from uh, those that, that do um, believe in religion and go to church. If anything, just stability. How about that? How about just blood in your community um, or donations, uh, con- you know, contributions and to charities? Powerful stuff, folks. Don't get in despair. There's hope. Uh, Life is good. And man, in China? Are you kidding me? That's so surprising to me that it's growing there like crazy. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, to, in a little coach's corner for you here today, uh, as we were just talking with Dr. Rodney Stark about, you know, myth of religion being in decline. Not, it's a myth, folks. Uh, religion's holding steady across the globe. And um, so I thought, hey, let's give you some ideas of why uh, the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life. Okay, try to give you eight different ideas here. By the way, this all comes from LiveScience.com. LiveScience.com, the name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you resist junk food. Does it? Because I am religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games— and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects, and they found out that those that were religiously cued, 
felt that they had uh, more control over their their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly, uh, maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's you know if you're not eating junk food, it, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know their churches regularly. According to a published study in the Journal of American Sociolo- Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social, of being uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So you know the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem, you know, if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, Depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, People who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your, you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of Intermountain area in the United States. If, as uh, Dr. Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church every single week, up to sixty to seventy percent of people in South America are attending mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, If you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, Interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, Sad. Uh, Another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow, that's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. So the belief, you know, this isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you 
uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a, in a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75 percent of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60 percent of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady. Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. That's it. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Again, we can't do it without you, so go go look up our app, uh, the BYU Radio app, and uh, you can download all of our podcasts. Share them with the people you love, you care about. We're helping you try to see the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas to help you uh, live healthier and happier right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Today we've got a great show. We're going to be talking about red-shirting your kindergartners. It's time you got to hold those kids back so that they can, you know, have a better career in everything they do. Hold them back. Make them the oldest. Allegedly. Allegedly. It depends on the kid. Yeah. What happens if you hold your kid back, he hits third grade and he's bored because he should be in fourth grade. Yeah, but then that's when you push him. See, that's when you teach him to, you know, you teach him trig. You teach him. You teach him. Calculus. Mm-hmm. They did that in my school just so that they'd be bigger for for football. Yeah, yeah. that's the other side of it. Is it works sports. great in sports? We hold our kids back, like if your uh, kid, I mean, because they're smaller. Yeah. So we would play them down a league, and then they're superstars. But how would you know if your kid's going to excel at a certain sport? You don't. How do you know if they're going to be 
say, big enough to play football effectively. But it might simply be, so forget the sports side, but just the maturity side. Just let your kids be the oldest in the class instead of the youngest. You don't want your child to be the runt. (laughs) See, I was the youngest, but I was also one of the biggest. Yeah, see, you had an advantage. No one would mess with you. Not really. They'd still mess with you. Well, when I was in elementary school and I was in third grade, the sixth graders would mess with you. But when you get into junior high and high school, I was as big as everybody else. So they didn't even look at me. They just sort of. See, our problem with our children, we just wanted them out of our house. Okay. So we just would push them up. Ah, you'll go ahead. You'll be fine. fine. Who cares if you're small? (laughs) Who cares if you look so tiny? But we're going to find out from Lori Day. Should we be redshirting our kindergartners, our children, holding them back a year? You don't also don't want your kid to be the biggest kid in the room. No. You know, there's always that one child in the kindergarten picture that's about two feet ahead, two feet taller than everybody. And she looks huge. And she's not. She's just a cute yeah, little. All through elementary school, tallest kid in the class was mm-hmm. a girl. Constantly. My son just played in a game with a guy that has to be 6'2". And my son is 12. Hmm. It was crazy. Did you check his birth certificate? You can do no, that. No, but I saw him drive away after the game. After he shaved. His, and, and he put his baby in the baby seat. Post-game shave, <laughs> got in the car, put the baby in the seat, and drove away. Yeah, <laughs> I'm out of here. Might want to check that birth certificate there. Something's not right. Hey, today is uh, Skeptics Day. Mm. Also the day after I don't believe it. State of the Union. <laughs> it's the day the skeptics come out. I thought every day was Skeptics Day. It's. I think at one point we tried to contain it to one day. And then this general population just will not have that. No. They've got to have it every day. Yeah. It's like Twinkies. I like being skeptical. you got to have it every single day. Uh, did you listen to the the uh, the uh, State of the Union, the So Too? I, I listened to the So Too. I saw that abbreviation this morning. I'm like, really? We have to abbreviate Everything's everything abbreviated. Now. Yeah, I saw the clips and saw some uh, highlights. Just sitting through the entire thing sometimes. I wasn't home, so I wasn't yeah. able to. I'm sure you taped it. No. I like to tape stuff like that, and then I, I, I tried to listen to it on the way in this morning, but I, have, I kept sleeping. My, my DVR told me I have 90% of the DVR remaining to use yeah. to fill up, and I chose not to do that with the State of the Union. Oh, that's sad. You missed a great opportunity. <laughs> I bet you can find it somewhere out there in listener land. Yeah. Hey, you know, on the show, we like to, um, we're here to help give you tools to live longer, love stronger, and it's not just for the healthy people. You know, we like to give the tools to everybody, even the criminals. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? In the Bad Boys file, uh, a narcissistic robber who couldn't resist taking a selfie mm. with one of his victims. Wow. Wow. It was a loud camera. Was arrested last week when the police detectives used the photo to identify him. So he Snapchatted a selfie with his victim. What a dummy. Yeah. Is he, was he gloating? I guess. Look what I did to you? Victor Almanza Martinez, 19, was one of three men who allegedly robbed four victims at gunpoint on December 30th in a seaside community of Pacific Grove, California. That's south of San Francisco. The group of men allegedly, members of a street gang, approached the victims. That's why he needed evidence. Well, you can have evidence on your phone, but don't put it out there. Well, then he just Snapchatted it to his peeps, well, his e- fellow gangsters. Email it to him. Text it to him. Yeah. I don't know. 
Just seems like you're broadcasting at that point. The group of men, allegedly members of the street gang, approached the victims as they sat in a parked car and ordered the victims out of their car before taking their possessions, including the keys to the vehicle, before fleeing in the stolen vehicle. And before doing all of this, Almanza Martinez exchanged Snapchat information and posed for a selfie with a female victim. And then he sent her the photo. So, hmm. yeah, so I'm, you know, it's robbery. What's your Snapchat handle, I guess? I'm going to send you a picture of this. Oh, would you? Thank you. I, I wonder if he felt like he was kind of rubbing the situation in their face, like, look what I just did. Yeah. And you can't do anything about this. And they're like, sure, go ahead. So then they had his picture. And because he was on probation for other crimes. He's in the system. They got him. Mugshot photos. (laughs) Bada boom, bada bing. So just some coaching advice for any of you out there thinking of, uh, you know, having, I guess, an armed robbery. Um, You might want to not take pictures. Don't create evidence. Don't create evidence. Don't Hmm. Snapchat anything. Don't exchange pictures with your victims. Or contact information because that's kind of. I mean, you think that's like, duh. You think it's a given. You think people yeah. would just understand this. Yeah, but it's not. Kind of the unspoken rules. And uh, it's not bad just for bad boys. We got bad women, too. Cleveland police were led on a chase by a drunken driver about 3.06 in the morning. <laughs> Jeez. The caller had followed the driver to a cul-de-sac uh, when the police arrived. The driver reportedly revved her engine, drove toward, and then passed a police cruiser driving onto the front lawn of a, of a house. After a short chase, the driver was stopped. Police noticed a brownish substance on her mouth and chin hmm. that the officers first thought was blood. Is that blood? No. It's hot wing sauce. <laughs> she told police she fled because she was being chased by her ex-boyfriend after leaving a bar in Strongsville. That served wings, apparently. Mm-hmm. Police noticed a fresh damage to the woman's car. She was later released to a sober friend, and uh, then she could finish her celery sticks and ranch dressing. Why do they put that with wings? I don't know. Does anyone eat that? Well, it make, doesn't it make you feel like you're healthier? Nah. If you just downed a bucket of wings, you're like, I need, I need some greens. <laughs> and isn't like celery the healthiest thing, closest thing like to water? It just seems really odd. You have this pile of of, of greasy wings, and then yeah. there's like a piece of celery, like, a kale chip. Well, you're just trying to fill out the rest of the plate. Why don't you put more wings over there? No, you need greens <sighs> and celery, and then you just and celery is just water, and you use it with your ranch or your yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not like you're using it as a, a way yeah. to put more ranch on your your wing. No, well, by the way, not a bad idea. <laughs> it just seems it's odd. like a utensil. That's not a bad idea. But, I like celery just because of the fiber. Mm, okay, you know what I mean? No. <laughs> So a little shout out to anybody that's going to try to evade police. Don't be eating your wings. Yeah. Focus on driving. You're already impaired. She could have made it at least another 10 miles. Right. If she wasn't all winged up. (laughs) She hadn't been winged by the cops. Anyway, we're here to help everybody, folks. Here to help everybody. Uh, In a minute, we'll be talking to Lori Day about red-shirting kindergartens. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. In his State of the Union address, President Obama declared that if Congress is serious about winning this war, it needs to finally authorize the use of military force against the Islamic State. That with or without congressional action, ISIL will learn the same lessons as terrorists before them. If you doubt America's commitment or mine 
to see that justice is done, just ask Osama bin Laden. When you come after Americans, we go after you. And it may take time, but we have long memories, and our reach has no limits. The U.S. will act alone if necessary, President Obama says, to protect our people and allies. But on a matter of global concern, we will mobilize the world to work with us and to make sure other countries pull their own weight. So, yay, 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 going after ISIS. And that happened. And there was times where he's talking and people would start clapping and he'd keep talking. And I'm like, you're yeah. stepping all over your applause, sir. Yeah, he's just trying to get it done. He wants this thing over with. Yeah, he was moving along. Had a had a... Something important to go yes. watch on TV. Yeah, after some he, wings to go get. After he messed up the entire viewing night. <laughs> the U.S. two U.S. Navy patrol boats and their crews were freed early Wednesday to international waters after being detained by the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards who said they entered Iranian territory. They detained U.S. Marines after it was realized that they... Uh, entry into uh, territorial waters was unintentional, and after the Marines apologized, they were released into international waters in the Persian Gulf, according to a statement from Iran's state-run news channel. Apparently, the two boats, one of the two boats ran into some mechanical issues, and they floated into the Iranian waters, and that's when they got picked up. I mean, that's seriously terrifying. I'm pretty sure, guys, I'm pretty sure we're floating. I'm pretty sure that's Iran. <laughs> they pull out the GPS, they go, oh, man, we're in trouble. Paddle! 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 So stroke, they, stroke. they were held overnight. They were released. Yeah. Not a big deal. Okay, Ted good. Cruz is holding on to his narrow lead over Donald Trump as the finish line in Iowa closes in. Just 19 days ahead of the state caucuses, a new Des Moines Register Bloomberg, Bloomberg Politics Iowa poll released Tuesday. Oh, these names get longer and longer. Uh, shows the Texas senator three percentage points ahead of Trump with 25% to Trump's 22. Cruz's polling numbers in Iowa have plummeted six points over the last month. Once he held a 10-point lead on Trump, 76% of voters still view him favorably, though. Good. So there's Cruz versus Trump. Now on the other side. They'll still fight. A big reversal from November. Bernie Sanders now leading Hillary Clinton by double digits in New Hampshire. A mo- and the State of the Union starts They're still again. clapping. A Monmouth University poll out Tuesday finds that Vermont Senator ahead of Clinton by 14 points, 53% to 39%, one month ahead of the state's February 9th primary. Just a couple months ago in November's poll, Clinton and Sanders are virtually neck and neck with Clinton only a few points ahead of Sanders. So he's taken a, uh, a sizable lead mm. as we're just you know about a month out. That's scary. Now, you know, we keep talking with Joe about the fact of how backloaded. She's got a ton of money. She'll go the distance, except you don't want to lose number one and two. No. Because that's going to create momentum for three. And what they keep saying is there's a lot of passion around Bernie that does not exist really around any other candidate except probably Trump. Yeah. Right? I mean. That's what I've heard too. So, but, but Hillary, she's got a passion deficit. But after you get past the first two contests, every other one she has a dominant lead in. Well, for now. Yeah, that's what Bernie Sanders said. But if you can't, if you don't have the passion of the youth. And remember, how is she going to win? Because Obama won because he brought in all of the Mm African-American. I mean, all of them and the youth. Hillary's without passion. You're not going to bring these people in. So then then it's going to be a possible GOP. Huh? Yeah. This is crazy town. It's interesting. Cool. And finally, the final State of the Union as First Lady Michelle Obama wore a bold marigold uh, Nicarso Rodriguez crepe dress. Pardon? That sold, Pardon? Yeah, I know. Some Pardon? designer. It, the, the dress sold out online before the dress was over. Wow. Was, so, she, was this QVC? Was she so, doing an SOU, S-SOTU QVC? Possibly. 
So before the speech was over, that dress was sold out at that dressmaker. Uh, it's not the first time she's donned the designer. Rodriguez was also behind the frock, as it says here, Holy that Miss Obama wore on election night in 2008. The Neiman Marcus website had the dress described as a sleeveless banded bodice mini dress or mid dress, M-I midi. Midi, like a, like a midi cable. Yeah, on sale for $628, down from the original of 2095 before it sold out. Hey, um, let me just get this straight. Go ahead. Did you just do like a fashion sort of segment on the Matt Townsend show? Sort of, kind of. Terry Lamar South. But her dress sold out before the speech was over. I know, but That's I have significant. never heard you do... A fashion I just, segment. I sort of, and I hashed it up too, because I mean, nar- you, you've offended nar- a lot of fashionistas. Nar- Narcizo Rodriguez. I have no oh, idea what that it. even means. You're hurting people's feelings. That's amazing. <laughs> ben, write that down. That's amazing. In the the BYU Radio History, in books? the annals of the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, that we just we done broke ground right there. That that has never happened. That uh, Terry South has ever. Gone that out on a fashion limb. Nor should, will it ever happen again, I'm sure. Should I send Don an email just yeah. to let him know? No, don't, Don, Don's actually sick today. So don't, don't send him anything because I don't want to make him more sick. Oh, okay. That was incredible. See, folks, breaking new ground here on the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, coming up next, Lori Day will be joining us. It is crazy that she wears a dress and it's selling out by the end of the, the so to. She ought to be on QVC. That's how they're going to make money. Michelle Obama is going to go on QVC, start pushing her clothes. Um, I wish I knew a better name. Um, we're going to take a break, come back, and talk about redshirting our kindergartners. Should we be holding our children back you know, so that they're the oldest, the biggest, the fastest, the tallest um, as they get into the, into the school years? Joining us will be Lori Day, who has uh, written about the topic, and uh, she's going to be teaching us the ins and the outs of holding your children back. Does it give them an advantage, truly? Or is it just something, a a trick that we think uh, might work? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Darling, don't you ever grow Don't you ever grow Just stay this little Darling, don't you ever grow Don't you ever grow It can stay this simple Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, redshirting is a strategy used in collegiate sports to allow players to extend their playability and their ability to play in the NCAA by a year or so. You know, basically a player doesn't play on game days but will train and practice with the team. The practice, however, has recently been expanding to include, believe it or not, kindergartners. Typically in the U.S., children begin kindergarten at five years old. Lately, however, some parents have been redshirting their kids so they don't start kindergarten until they are six. And our guest today uh, is Lori Day. She's an educational consultant from the website LoriDayConsulting.com. She joins us now from Massachusetts to talk about the pros and cons of holding your children back. Um, in, in starting kindergarten. Lori Day, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. You wrote a, a, an interesting article um, on this in the Huffington Post. Uh, and so so kind of give us give us the groundwork of this. Why why are people why are parents choosing to even think about holding their kids back? We were kind of excited to get our kids going <laughs> and maturing, supposedly. Absolutely. Uh, my youngest brother has an August 30th birthday. And today would very, very likely be redshirted, but certainly back in the uh, late 60s, um, no, you wanted your child to go ahead and go on to school and have all kinds of interesting things to do. And so this has changed very much. Is it, I mean, in redshirting in college, it it actually, it's an advantage because the freshmen can get some experience. They just wouldn't play in games. They can still be a part of the team and and grow and learn. Is, Is the idea, though, with our children, by holding them back, um, they're, I, to me, I see it as an advantage in your height, in your size, if, they're, if your mm-hmm. kid's a little bigger. Does it have other benefits? Well, it does. I mean, um, it certainly has social benefits, and it also has benefits in terms of if a child enters kindergarten later at six rather than at five, um, they're much better able to um, focus and concentrate and maintain attention, sit still. Um, and do the kinds of things that are expected of them in the new kindergarten that we have now, because kindergarten itself has changed very much. The academic focus um, has dripped down into the kindergarten year. It it used to be a child's first year of school. Um, And now, of course, most children have had some sort of preschool or daycare experience, and we have um, the pressure of standardized testing, and academics are starting younger and younger. So Basically, we have a problem now where rather than schools being ready for kids, kids need to be ready for school. Mm. And so for some kids, especially young ones, especially young boys, parents don't feel they're ready to handle the demands of what kindergarten has become and that they will actually have a benefit that accrues to them over the next 13 years of their schooling if they hold them back to start kindergarten later um, and enter college older rather than younger. Wow. And I mean, and there's there's some actually some interesting corollary data in uh, the very popular book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, right, about like the hockey teams that absolutely that have the older players. They they end up I guess they were held back, uh, mm-hmm. but they got to well, that gave them the ability to um, kind of mature, to play longer with better teams. And it ended up becoming a major force in creating a lot of professional hockey players. Right. It kind of started hockey. Um, That was the sport where you saw it happening the most often and also um, the most extreme in terms of um, having kids with birthdays in January, February or March um, being uh, held back, you know, when they would normally be kind of right in the middle age-wise for their grade, um, holding them back made them quite a bit older and more physically developed and more athletically um, strong and coordinated. Uh, And so, you know, it was it was doing something to a child that affected all of their schooling and many things about their life purely for an athletic advantage. Mm. Uh, And there's things that parents um, need to be thinking about when the kids are in pre-kindergarten and the decisions being made that have to do with kind of all of these early school years, not just what's going to happen when they hopefully are playing Division I hockey. Right, exactly. Maybe they're playing saxophone. You really don't know what these kids are going to be doing. And so the decisions parents make that young 
on their behalf in some ways can be seen as, as taking a year of their life for no reason. Right. Um, and I think it needs to be looked at more carefully. Well, I mean, because there's a social side to all of this too, right? And developmental side, it seems like it, it couldn't hurt to hold them back socially and academically um, if, if they're going to be growing and developing and being more prepared to handle the stresses and all of the pressures. So what, what is the research saying about all of this? Well, the research is saying that if you're holding a child back um, because of uh, they're chronologically young, they have social uh, maturing to do, which we see more with boys than girls, um, that holding them back can be very helpful because they enter school on a stronger footing that they are more likely to maintain. Whereas if you go ahead and send them to school young and immature, um, they're at risk of turning off to school because they're fidgety, they're getting scolded a lot, they're having a lot more trouble doing the tasks their peers are doing, and that can set the stage for a negative school experience for them forever. Oh, yeah. So for those kids, it's a, it's a really good idea um, to hold them back. Um, but if that's not the reason you're doing it, and academically they're ready, and they have the um, things that they need to be good students, the, those, those habits of mind, as I call them, which are like the ability to listen and follow directions and work in a group and pay attention, if those things are developed normally, then they should go ahead and go to school. Um, there's, you know, athletic reasons should not be the reason you right. know, that you hold them back. So if it's developmentally appropriate. Um, there are studies that show that kids that are held back have an initial academic advantage, particularly with literacy. Um, they will, you know, enter kindergarten older and therefore read sooner and um, appear to be doing, you know, at least on grade level or above grade level. But by the third or fourth grade, those advantages tend to wash out. Mm. And I've seen it myself because I worked in schools for over 25 years, and I watched what happened with these kids where at first they had that advantage. But then whatever their ability was going to be, um, developmentally, the kids were all kind of caught up, and it, we weren't seeing issues of, of development anymore by third or fourth grade. And so the initial advantage sometimes disappeared. Now, if a child um, was being held back because of an undiagnosed learning disability, um, then what would happen is you would have a child who was a year older who still had that learning disability right. that still needed to be addressed. And it made no difference that you redshirted them. So you really need to understand what is going on with your child when you, when you make the decision, and sometimes getting professional advice is a good idea if, as a parent, you don't know what to do. I mean, I have a child that was um, socially anxious, anxious, and it was, it was kindergarten where we kind of realized it. Uh, yep. His preschools didn't push him in that way that he felt awkward or weird. But in a way, I, I look at it like that would have been maybe a perfect time to go address some of the social anxieties mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and cuz it did it ended up skewing his view of education and right. and school and, and mm -hmm, yeah. exactly yeah. and and, so and yet you, and as, as a 18 year old he really he's thriving now because he can kind of do he can do it his way and at his pace and at his interest level Right. And I think what parents are doing now is playing it safe so that, like you, if they are having those kinds of, of questions about their child, they're 
um, making the conservative decision to hold them back because they know that that is harder to do later mm-hmm. because it comes with a social stigma. How right. do you do it unless you change schools or move or go to private school? Like holding your child back in public school um, later on oh. is, is very difficult to do. So yeah. they think to themselves, well, if we may have to do it, let's do it now when the kid won't notice, when they'll get the benefit of being older for all of those years and what do you really have to lose and so forth. So I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing more of it now is just parents playing it safe and also recognizing that the demands of kindergarten have changed. They Mm. have gone up. And so that influences them as well. Why aren't we, um, if it's so advantageous, kind of in a way, physically, socially, emotionally, um, why aren't we just moving kindergarten back for everyone? Um, You mean moving it to a later age, to yeah. starting at age six. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, why, why aren't we do just, that? Yeah, it Some seems like you that. don't even start school till age seven, particularly the Scandinavian countries. Um, one of the reasons, and um, we can talk about this in a couple of ways, but one of the reasons is that public school, when public school starts, is the time when working parents finally have free childcare because right. their child's in school, and so. Um, we have a situation already where middle class and upper middle class parents can make the decision about what's best for their child. And if that's to hold them back, they can afford the extra year of preschool or daycare before school starts, while working class and poor families cannot. And that contributes to the achievement gap that we see because they're desperate. They're waiting for school to start so that they're not having to pay for childcare while they work. So to move it down the road another year, one reason that would be problematic is financially for so many families, it, it just really is not feasible. Also, the same thing would continue happening, the jockeying around being older. Someone is always going to be the youngest no matter when school starts. And so the, the, the issues that we have now would just be put off by a year, but the same thing would happen. So right. I don't see any reason to no. do it. Well, and, and again, yeah, the disparity of the, the, I mean, the, in, the, the people that lower income that can't afford it, it really is – you can see how it kind of is the building, too, of – you know, a, a really prepared or more prepared student. It's almost you can see the parents kind of behind the scenes trying to get their child on the fast track. And oh, definitely, oh, it's incredible. Definitely, I mean, and it creates a lot of problems. You know, if you if you kind of fly this at thirty thousand feet, and you you don't just look at each child individually, which which you should, and each parent that's their job is to yeah. look after their kid. But if you look at it from a societal level. Um, We now have classes with uh, not a 12-month age span, but more like an 18-month age span. And that makes um, classroom management um, much more difficult for teachers. And we expect so much more of teachers in terms of differentiated instruction. And so now they have to differentiate instruction to kids that are 18 months apart in age, not 12 months. And so it's a really crazy situation that we have that... Um, is very difficult uh, for the classroom teacher, and there's all kinds of effects on the standardized testing, and we have teacher evaluations tied to those outcomes. So we have real justice issues for teachers um, because this is happening. So it's it's a very broad um, topic to think about. That's a big issue, and it's not just – that's why you almost need to do it one child at a time, your child – 
uh, and and I guess that's what has to happen. The parents have to mm-hmm. work on their children. Um, but that doesn't always happen, too, equally over everybody. Let's let's take a break. We're speaking with Lori Day from LoriDayConsulting.com. Lori is an educational consultant and uh, wrote a really intriguing article in the Huffington Post called Red Shirting in the Age of Academic Kindergarten. Should you hold your child back? She gives you the pros, the cons. Uh, just a wonderful read. We will also put a link of it up on our um, Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. Um, We'll take a break. Come back, continue this discussion with Lori Day. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Love this song. Send me on my way by Rusted Root. But don't send me too early, Mom. Let me just, let me grow a little older before you send me to kindergarten. Today we're talking about red shirting your kindergartner. Should you hold your kids back a year, um, you know, to, to kind of get them on the right path, make sure they've matured socially, make sure, you know, mentally they're there, psychologically they're where they need to be. Um, I think in an idyllic world, it sounds like a really great idea. You're still going to have to make the decision one child at a time. What's in the best interest of your child? Joining us on the phone from Massachusetts, Lori Day from Lori Day Consulting. She's an educational consultant and the author of a book that, or an article we found on um, Huffington Post about redshirting. Should you hold your kids back? Um, interesting, interesting topic. Uh, Lori Day, welcome back to the show. Yes, happy to be here. Great to have you. Talk to me about, um, you, you started mentioning it before the break, but if we if we release all of these more mature, socially, you know, v- more um, healthy, more mentally, I guess, strong and ready to learn children on a new, on a kindergarten teacher, it seems like she may not be able to with like you were saying too there's an 18 month span between the oldest and the youngest if we're holding some of them back how on earth does a teacher keep that some of them stimulated and some of them quiet and how do they manage all of that well it's really not easy and um i've talked to a lot of teachers about this in my career um certainly in recent years as it's gotten to be more common and um, what teachers will tell you is that they have mixed feelings about the whole situation. Um, on the one hand, when they get red-shirted kids that are six years old coming into kindergarten, they will be the first to admit that those kids have a greater ability to follow directions and a greater ability to sit still. And, you know, we expect that a lot more of kids than we should, um, and teachers don't like it, but it's, it's out of their control what they're expected to do in terms of how much academics they have to fit into the day and how little recess they're able to give. Right. So when they get the older kids, those kids are easier. Um, but the problem is that when you then have this big span where there's parents who don't redshirt their kids and they have summer birthdays and they might be boys with summer birthdays that are, you know, um, chronologically and emotionally young, um, when they're trying to deal with managing the behavior of the class and teaching social skills and um, so forth, it's really hard because developmentally your oldest child and your youngest child are in very different places. Um, the youngest children often feel intimidated by the older 
bigger children in the classroom who have the natural leadership abilities often but can sometimes drown out their voices and physically feel intimidating to them. And so that's very difficult for teachers. Um, and so is, like you say, differentiating instruction because if you have older kids that are ready for more and they're already reading right. um, and then you have younger kids who haven't cracked the code at all, um, it's just a much bigger span of development that they have to deal with. And so they kind of like the older kids that are a little bit more ready for what they're being forced to do, um, but they don't like the breadth in age that lands on them uh, that they have to deal with. Mm. So I guess part of this is you, you might also need to look at your school system and where you're going to be sending the child. Are they able to handle it? What's the best solution? Maybe you might move to a private school if you didn't think a certain school could handle it or maybe move to a really, you know, a, a program that's that's a little more able to take your child's distinct and specific needs into account. Right. Well, the private school question, and I worked many years in private schools, you know, as well as public, so I I can kind of talk about both of those. But the the private school situation is interesting because for the mainstream private schools, the ones that are competitive to get into, the ones that get many more applications than, than seats, they prefer the kids to be even older. Um, they're competing with each other. Um, they're complete competing over college entrance. They're wow. competing over college prep, all of that. And so um, those schools are not going to be taking a younger kid. They, they always right. ask them or almost always ask them to repeat or to, or to be redshirted if they're in pre-K. Other private schools that are not doing as well, that have open seats, that are kind of suffering with enrollment, will do the opposite, and they will consider a child who misses that September 1st cutoff and the parents really want them to go. Maybe they're an early reader or they need the child care. Um, those private schools will take a child with a September, October, November birthday and let them start kindergarten, and then they're super, super young hmm. because they're in there with all the kids that are a year older and then the ones that were red-shirted as well. And sometimes they do it strategically, Um, intending only to do that for a year or two so that then they can show up at their own public school and say, here's Johnny, he's going into second grade. Yeah. And he's really young, and it's a way of getting around the cutoff if if a parent wants to do that. But for other private schools, it's a no-go. They won't even consider your kid. So they're all different in that respect. In terms of public school systems, um, certainly in your more affluent suburban towns, there's more redshirting. Because people can't afford it, because people are more competitive, and they're more, you know, thinking about sports and all these kinds of things like we started out yeah. the segment talking about. So um, you can move if you can figure it out, if you, if you know who to talk to and you, and you get a sense of it. Um, but, you know, you're going to be facing this in one way or another kind of, of anywhere, and it really should be what is the best thing for your own child because as much as I'd like everybody to sort of solve the achievement gap between the rich and the poor by kind of doing what's right, um, it doesn't make sense for individual children a lot of the time. Yeah, you, and, and it's – yeah, and you want the best for your child. Start there right. and then we can work on you know equality or equity other ways, I guess. But OK, so if I'm a parent and I'm trying to make this decision, walk me through the, my thought process. What, what should I be thinking about? And, and, and tell me how I should decide what to do with my child. Okay. 
Well, um, in my opinion, if your child has a fall or winter birthday or even early spring, you have nothing to think about. (laughs) You send your child to kindergarten um, because it it would be, unless there's just some extreme reason, I'll tell you, I, I, I had a very sad experience once in working with a family with a child with cancer. And because of the cancer and the chemotherapy, this child lost a whole year of his life and needed to start kindergarten when he could start kindergarten and he was much, much older. So that's an extreme kind of a situation. Um, I think for the average kid that's already old for the grade, you send them to school. If it's a summer birthday, possibly for very immature kids, a spring birthday, um, what you would be doing is thinking about how are they doing right now in their pre-K year because they're either in daycare or nursery school or preschool and you have a teacher you can talk to and you get reports. You know, they're usually not graded, but they're narrative style report cards and they often have check boxes that are very developmental in nature like, you know, um, is is approaching this skill, is, is meeting this skill, is excelling at this skill. Uh, so you have a sense of how ready your child is based on the data of, of how they're actually doing in school now, and you certainly can talk with your preschool teacher or the director of your program and ask the question, do you think my child should go ahead and go, or would you recommend that they stay back? That's who knows your child best in a group, in a school setting every day. Right. And so then you need to do that. Let, let me your just ask you about friends really fast, Lori, because my – like. I see in my neighborhoods where I live, your friends and your neighbors across the street and your kids are best friends that yep. you think, oh, yeah, let, yeah, they should just go. But just because your child has a friend doesn't mean educationally this it wouldn't be better to hold him back. That's correct. And you shouldn't make the decision based on friends because at that age, kids will um, often – Feel, feel something negative about it, but they're very resilient. They bounce back. If you present the decision confidently with, and, and you're not fraught with anxiety over it in front of them, um, they generally are going to buy in and adapt pretty quickly. That's not true when they get older. Right. That's why doing it, if you're going to do it while they're young, is better. Um, so uh, the other thing you can do is all children at this age, in the, in the, uh, at the end of the school year, May or June, are going to go through kindergarten screening in your public school system, often at the actual elementary school where they would attend. Hmm. And so the results of the kindergarten screening give you even more information about where your child is developmentally and how ready they are for school. So between that and how they're functioning currently in pre-K, that gives you a really good idea about what to do. Now, if your child has something about them that's not just developmental, but there's something going on, they're on the spectrum, um, or perhaps they're looking like they possibly have some sort of expressive language disability or language-based learning disability or something isn't quite right neurologically and they may have a learning disability, then you're going to want to get an evaluation and you're, you're going to want more information about how your child is doing so that you have that to help you decide whether to send them or to, or to keep them back, whether um, keeping them back would be helpful or would make no difference. But either way, they're going to need support, right? So whether they enter school now or later, if there's a learning disability going on, 
um, documenting that and, and getting recommendations and um, lining up accommodations within the school in advance is the best thing you can do before they actually even step foot in September. You know what you're kindergarten ex- year. You're explaining, Lori, like parents need to be a little more objective of their child. And it's almost like we kind of just all get in lockstep. And because they were all in the preschool class together um, and they all, you know, went to kinder music and learned music together, mm-hmm. they all ought to naturally just and they play Little League, whatever. We all ought to naturally just go to school together. But every parent, it sounds like what you're saying. And I guess this is kind of the role of an educational consultant is we, we need to objectively look at our child and say, is he ready? Is she ready? Does she have what it takes? Is she where she needs to be maturity-wise? Does she have a learning disability or an emotional issue? I mean, just really look at our kids before we just enter them into the school system. Right. If, if we have any kind of reservation or the teacher is expressing any kind of reservation about the child going to kindergarten, um, that's true. And um, just to clarify, um, most educational consultants are not also educational psychologists, Mm. um, which I am. And so I'm actually speaking more as an educational psychologist in this interview than an educational consultant. And um, educational consultants generally help with applying to private schools, with deciding what's the best school match and so forth, which I do. But understanding uh, a child's learning style and development is more in the realm of what a psychologist does. So there's a school psychologist that's at in the, in the public school um, system that your child would go to, and there's also people that work privately. So if you're talking about that type of evaluation, you're really not talking about a consultant. You're talking mm. about a psychologist. Yeah, good stuff. And if they want to reach you and find out more about what you're doing, Lori, they just go to lauridayconsulting.com. That's right. All my contact information is there. And um, because I've written a number of articles about this, I do get a lot of calls about it from people who want um, to hire me just briefly to discuss the the pros and cons and and the specifics of their child. And I'm happy to read um, report cards and neuropsychs and different kinds of uh, testing scores and help parents decide if if that's what um, their challenge is. But there's also many free ways of doing that um, that I've already discussed. And I've seen on your site, too, there's a lot of articles, too, that are very valuable about just making some of these decisions, great books that kids can read. I mean, wonderful yep. educational tools as well. We appreciate you. Lori Day from LoriDayConsulting.com and uh, your insight about red shirting or holding our children back. Excellent stuff. Appreciate you. righty. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And all of us, folks, th- these are your kids, for heaven's sakes, right? These are your little babies. Um, maybe we ought to just slow it down, a, just, a, just a titch, just slow it down and try to figure out what's in the best interest of your child at that stage of their life. Um, and maybe kind of even reevaluate every year, not like you would pull them back, you know, years into this. Uh, school process and education process, but let's let's make conscientious decisions. Let's not just do it because that's just what you do. These are individuals, right? These are real human beings with a real future uh, that needs to grow and develop. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what a great, 
there's a, there's a benefit to holding people back in school because it just makes us all smarter. It's a good time to be living. In fact, uh, who better to teach us that than Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin? He is unleashing an army of superpower rats to sniff out ISIS bombs. Like, think about this, folks. Cute little ratatouille rat, you know, just a cute little rat. If they can make ratatouille in the Disney movie, ratatouille rat goes out slowly, you know, out in the out in Afghanistan or out in uh, now Syria. And they just send the rats out to find the bombs and the bomb, the rats is going to sniff around and, and, and start maybe digging a little hole. Sniff, 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 sniff. Bada boom, bada bing, ratatouille. Problem solved. Except you lost your rat. But I guess, you know, it's the next generation of warfare. Warfare, according to Vlad, Vladimir Putin, the rodents would have microchips implanted in their brains that would allow the creatures to sniff out explosives or drugs in places that are unsearchable by humans. And then there'll be an explosion. The trained rodents would alert their handlers to the dangerous or illegal materials before they themselves have any had any time to register it because the scientists could monitor their brain waves. How weird is this? Like, <gasps> I smell a bomb. And then that alerts the handler. This would mean that the scientists have to constantly be preparing more and more batches of rats, apparently, because, you know. Rats are going to, you know, they're a dime a dozen. The scientists based in Rostov-on-Don near the border with Ukraine have still been given the green light um, to uh, continue the project and to start harnessing rats uh, and and to be able to actually you have to harness them and be able to read their neurons. So, you know, they're probably wearing little rat helmets, which might help in an explosion. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it gives a whole new name to Ratatouille, doesn't it? If a, if a rat can make dinner, as Disney's movie has showed us, then easily the rat could probably save lives. Interesting stuff, folks. Stick with us. we got a whole new hour. Next hour, uh, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Mr. Singh, known as the Guru of Bling because of his spectacular costumes, has accepted the apology. BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, the show where we give you the information you need to grow a healthier, happier life. And today we will be talking about introverted spouses. So if you have a spouse that's shy or quiet or introverted, you know, what on earth do you do? I mean, do you just drag them to every party and they're always complaining? I don't want to go to the party. We'll be talking with Dr. Larry Nelson here from Brigham Young University. He's going to walk us through some of his, uh, you know, some of his studies and research about introversion and uh, shyness. It'll be, I think, a very interesting discussion. Also, we're going to be talking with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on with them. I want to hear what they think about the Rams move. 
from the from St. Louis to Los Angeles. The Rams are going home. That's huge. My favorite childhood football team going back to L.A. Uh, sad for St. Louis because St. Louis, you know, they did well. They did they did a great job there. Some Super Bowls. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, before we do that, too, today, by the way, for some of you that are into the national gambling scene, <laughs> the the Powerball tonight, ten fifty nine p.m. The pot will be one point five billion dollar. People around the country are throwing down two dollars up to five thousand dollars to win this jackpot. Man, one poor soul from Texans, Texas. Listen to this. Luck was not on his side of a Texas man who ventured out to buy a lottery ticket this week. The 67-year-old Fort Worth man was walking to a store in his neighborhood on Monday in hopes of winning the upcoming $1.5 billion Powerball jackpot when he fell through a deep hole at a construction site. Whoa. Audio from the scene. Or goofy. That was goofy? Yeah. Landing in the water at the bottom. He fell through a deep hole. By the way, a construction site, and which is weird because right now at BYU Broadcasting, I can feel the building shaking. Just clarifying, was that an earthquake or are we just still doing construction? Construction. Okay. There's an excavator out there digging. Uh, Make sure you let me know if there is an earthquake. It it would be difficult to to tell. I don't want to miss it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This poor guy fell um, at the bottom of a seven-foot opening. Holy cow. Officers were able to climb into the hole and give the man aid before pulling him to the surface. Because of his uh, the quick thinking and dedication of the officers, this man and his family can say they truly won the biggest lottery of all, the service of his police force. But he still didn't get a ticket. I have a feeling if he had won 1.5 bill. We would have a better day. He would have had a lot better day. So he didn't say any injuries? No. He, he fell into water? Uh, I guess a little, yeah, some water. Huh. Hmm. That's crazy. You know, which just should should warn all of us. Careful on the way to the lottery ticket buying place because you never know. Uh, billionaire Mark Cuban, owner of the Mavs, the Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks he, has some advice for the winners. He well, he got his money. He created an online one of the first online streaming websites, and then I think he sold it to AOL. Mm-hmm. And they gave him a billion dollars for it. And I think the website actually crashed a couple years later. Just no one cared. <laughs> so he made a billion and then it went away. So he, he, he came into his money kind of winning a lottery in the sense that someone purchased his company. Yeah. I mean, and to so, me, the lottery's not your best way to make a life. And yeah. everyone say, oh, I'm not taking it seriously. Well, there's a lot that are. People are waiting in line for three hours yeah. In Prim, California. I mean, if you've been to Prim, there's nothing. There's, the a, of there's nowhere. a gas station there. People are waiting for three hours to get a ticket. By the way, your odds of winning the 1.5 bill billion dollars one in 292 million. So what you're saying is there's a chance, <laughs> a very slim chance. Okay. So here is uh, billionaire Mark Cuban's advice: Number one, don't take the lump sum. Yeah. If you take the lump sum, you're just going to go. You're going to just blow it faster. Make them kind of pay you out. So then you, you, you get your income over time. Number two, if you weren't happy yesterday, you won't be happy tomorrow. It's money. It's not happiness. That's great advice from a billionaire. If you're already a miserable, you know, pain in the neck. Nice. See how I clean that up? That was good. Then you're just, tomorrow you'll just be a rich. Pain in the neck. Henri pain in the neck. Yeah. If you were happy yesterday, however, you're going to be a lot happier tomorrow. Because he's very honest that having money makes life easier in many ways. 
because you don't have to worry about your bills. You, for example, Ben, could make all the ice cream flavors you want. You could fix your teeth? Okay. Sorry. What? <laughs> you could fix your teeth? No, you have wonderful <laughs> teeth. Don't worry about it. He really does have great teeth. What the? <laughs> I've never heard something so rude, but totally true. Uh, you could tell all of your friends and relatives no. If you win the lotto tonight, first call I'd make, not an attorney, first call I'd make to the loudest, nosiest family member you've got and say, send out the word, Papa one, $1.5 have nobody call me. Yeah. Nobody's getting any money. I... But I will take you on vacation with me. Right. If you're quiet and you leave me alone. Tell your friends and relatives no. They will ask, he says. Tell them no. If you are close to them, you already know who needs help and what they need. So you can feel free to help some of them. But talk to your accountant before you do anything. Remember this. No one needs $1 million for anything. No one needs $100,000 for anything. Anyone who asks is not your friend. Wow. Cuban's like, he's like a shark. But think of that. I mean, you you go to someone, I need $100,000. No, you don't. But, you know, if you're going to die. But, I mean, for the most I'd part. I'd say Obamacare. Get people, Obamacare. People coming to you didn't need 100000 until they found out that you had that and they know you. Right. That's true. Mark Cuban's a smart dude. You do not become a smart investor when you win the lottery. You don't have to. Don't make investments, he says. You can put the money in the bank and live comfortably forever. You will sleep a lot better knowing you won't lose the money. This is coming from the guy that helps people invest money in their businesses. Yes. On what, Shark Tank? Shark Tank. It's yeah. like he's not listening to his own advice. No, I mean, just the idea that if you don't know what you're doing, don't think like all of a sudden now you have money and that means you know what you're doing. Yeah. Because you could just see people just putting money into startups or something, some company, and then it just gets, it just disappears because think of it's the an millions, investment. Yeah, that you would lose trying to make more money or keep yeah. your money up. Most importantly, this is what Cuban urged people, not to spend money, too much money, buying lottery tickets. He says, I guess it's okay to spend $2 for entertainment value, but if you have $10, go to a Mavs game. <laughs> Come give it to me. <laughs> I thought he was like really being noble there, but yeah. no, I was just really trying to get to the Mavs game. Uh, anyway, you know, it's, it's not the fastest, healthiest, best way to get your life in order. And there is an element of fun because you're part of something that's kind of big. There's all these people across the country, and they're all, you know. But when it gets to the point where it's like you're just doing yeah. this every day, and it turns into a something beyond something to this kind of a entertainment right. diversion, yeah, you might want to think about maybe it. rent a movie. Yeah, there's other things get you can a spend red your box money on. for two bucks a yeah. buck. Anyway, that's uh, that's pretty interesting stuff. In a minute, we'll be talking with Dr. Larry Nelson about introverted spouses. What do you do if you have a really shy spouse um, or if they just feel really bad because somebody said their teeth don't look great? I, I have to send this to my wife when we're done. Let yeah. her listen to this interview because she doesn't seem to know what she, she doesn't how think, to deal with yeah. me. Well, yeah. and But you're a train wreck. Uh, yeah, this might be able to help. She calls me every day. What should I do now? Oh, man. Hey, uh, we're going to go to the headlines, though, with Terry, our introverted uh, producer. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. In his final State of the Union address Tuesday night, President Barack Obama implored Americans to take part in the democratic process. He said, whatever you may believe, whether you prefer one party or not, or collect our collective future depends on your willingness to uphold our obligations as a citizen, he said. Obama also acknowledged that the country was more divided than it was when he took office. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency 
that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better, he said. Obama also appealed to Congress to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership, emphasizing his pr- uh, the proposal to lift the Cuban embargo and to again vow to close the prison at Guantanamo, a failed promise he has made in previous State of the Union addresses. The president also described the country as strong, clear-eyed, and big-hearted. So strong, clear-eyed, big-hearted. That's great. So it was kind of introspective in the fact that he hasn't really, you know, he's failed in some things. Yeah. I've succeeded in some things. Oh, that was cool. The country's better off, you know. I wish I could have done more. It was a positive message there. Harney County, that's up in Oregon with our friends that are hanging out on that wildlife refuge. Uh, Judge Steve Grassy from that county up there, Harney County, also he spoke in this meeting they had a few days ago where he said the occupation has cost taxpayers an estimated sixty to $70,000 each day it has dragged on. Ugh. We are going to send Mr. Bundy the bill, says Grassley, who criticized Republican lawmakers for meeting with the militants over the weekend. The judge also called on residents not to offer assistance to the roughly two dozen Uh, occupiers who have been joined in recent days by out-of-state militia groups. No matter how you feel, do not bring food and supplies to the refuge. Don't send them anything. It lets it continue going, and it never stops. What's costing $60,000? The security. Oh, there is security. There's some sheriff's officers that are out there, mainly keeping the road clear of all the media who are still standing out in front of their gates. I have a feeling they're not going to get any of that money from the Bundys. Well, he's going to send them a bill. Okay. We'll see what happens. How effective is it to place election campaign signs in the yards of supporters, do you think, to a campaign? Uh, I would say I would say fairly effective because you're like, hey, Billy Bob over there likes so-and-so. A study conducted by a team of researchers from Columbia University and several other schools around the country found that lawn signs increase a candidate's vote share by less than 2% and had no significant effect on voter turnout. While that might be enough to influence a very close race, for most elections, the study concludes that campaign funds would better be spent elsewhere. Mm. In the 2014 congressional elections, for instance, most races were won with at least a 10-point margin of victory. So they're saying that the the, the signs affect at 2%. Yeah. Most of the races were won by 10%, so it's really kind of a waste well, of money. that's true. Unless you're Bush Gore, then <laughs> well, you're like, blasted! Yeah, there's that one. More signs. Yeah, interesting. So it would be more effective in a close race versus the majority end up mm-hmm. kind of being decided. Um, last hour, we had a fashion yeah, uh, report on uh, Mrs. Obama. Which you just completely destroyed. Well, the name of the designer. Who cares? But the, her dress sold out yeah. before the State of the Union was over. Was it like, uh, was f- it at, where was it? Like at Target? Neiman Marcus. Oh, man. So it was a, it was it was a, a mass-produced dress. S- it was a $600 dress. Actually marked down from two thousand dollars. Wow! So you know, sold there was out. Some money though. spent. Well, people purchased the dress. Um, more fashion news. Oh wow! Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. <laughs> He's the uh, the drug kingpin from yeah. Mexico that was arrested uh, earlier this week. He's a lot of things, namely a notorious Mexican drug lord and a uh, captured fugitive, but apparently he's also an unlikely fashion icon. Guzman's fashion choices made it into the spotlight after a photo of him shaking Sean Penn's hand ran alongside the actor's profile of the Kingpin and Rolling Stone, uh, the latest issue of Rolling Stone. The blue the blue paisley and stripe button-down Guzman was wearing so captured the attention of fashionista, fashionistas, which is what you are, right, Matt? Absolutely. Uh, that they started, the shirts were flying 
flying off the shelves, according to TMZ. In fact, Guzman's power as a fashion influencer is so strong that a Los Angeles-based uh, fa- uh, uh, shop has started using the drug lord's image on its website to sell the, quote, fantasy men's shirt, as well as the crazy paisley blouse that he has also been <laughs> photographed as wearing. Blouse? Blouse. The store says that the demand for its most wanted shirt, as they call it, is initially so high that its website crashed. Just like Guzman, who was recaptured Friday and arrested for his role as the head of the Cianola drug cartel, these shirts aren't free. The men's blouses are selling for $128 a piece. I would like the um, the Ch- El Chapo blouse, please. Give an El Chapo special, <laughs> In a please. large? <laughs> uh, wow. I, I like these fashion reports. Yeah. I. They're kind of newsworthy-ish. Ish. Ish. But it's interesting. I just didn't think you'd ever stoop. To such. I, that's not stooping. This is this is El Chapo, El Chapo, the little man. What are they? That means like the little. Yeah, it means little, the little stud, little guy, something like that. But yeah, his, his shirts. Okay, people like them, and they're they're one one store in California is using his picture alongside the the oh, advertisement geez. on the website. You go, hey, remember this shirt? Go get blouse. It. Let's use the right Excuse term. Me. It's a blouse. Blouse. Do you remember when Ben wore that blouse and we're like, Ugh, Benny, we don't wear blouses here, pal. Those are funny days. I uh, thought got, it looked good. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're close. Um, we got a great guest coming up, Dr. Larry Nelson here um, from Brigham Young University. He's going to be walking us through uh, this transition that people make. So imagine you grew up shy or introverted, and now you've got to you know emerge into adulthood, but you're an introverted person. It's a hard g- deal. It's a hard leap for some of us to... Uh, to all of a sudden go out into that extroverted world at times and perform, do what you need to do. So Dr. Larry Nelson will be talking about shyness, introversion, and the transition to adulthood. you got to listen to us. If you if you got anybody in your family that's a little introverted, this uh, this will be the, the uh, interview for you. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, in studio with us today is uh, Professor um, Dr. Larry Nelson, who is the who's a professor here at Brigham Young University in the Department of Family Life, and he's here to talk to us about being shy. And so, think about that. If if you think back to your high school days, you can think of people that you know. Oh, he was probably a shy kid, or you probably can picture a little kindergartner boy who stood in the corner instead of going out to recess. But as we get older, as we progress, at some point, the shyness, it, it, it's going to impact us in a major way, especially as we move into adulthood, as your kids go on to school, eventually as we marry. Um, so we wanted uh, Larry to come join us today and uh, Professor Nelson to, to talk to us about that. Dr. Larry Nelson, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Great to have you. Talk about shyness. and. Um, is shyness the real term for it? Is that what is? Is it introversion? What do we call it? Uh, that's a great starting point. Let me try to uh, uh, clarify that. So, oftentimes we we just think anybody who's quiet, anybody yeah. who withdraws, basically anybody who's not an extrovert, yeah, is is shy. But that's that's really not the case. We know there are a couple different uh, forms of being withdrawn, and so uh, very quickly and easily, maybe. As shy are those who they want to interact, but they're afraid. 
They're just They're afraid. afraid. <clears throat> it's like it's anxiety. It's a, it's a social anxiety, maybe. Uh, anxiety is in its extreme form okay. when when it starts to interfere with uh, normal behaviors. But um, but just that as insecure, you, as you said, that that kindergarten child who's watching others play but is is afraid to join yeah. in. Then there's um, another form of withdrawal. The introversion, or, or we uh, call it uh, being un, unsocial. It's not that they're afraid. Um, it's not that they don't like other people. They just, these individuals like solitude. Huh. If, if given the choice of, I, I talk to my college students, if you have a Friday night, no homework, no responsibilities, do you want to go out with friends, go on a date, hang out, or do you just want to sit at home with a book or yeah. a movie? These individuals would choose the solitude. Uh, but if they're asked to interact, if they need to interact, they do just fine. They just prefer solitude. And then there, there's a third form of those individuals who just really don't want to be around people. They do all they can to avoid. But uh, So that, that shy group is the really interesting one. Um, uh, of they're afraid. They want to interact. They, they really do. Yeah, they even afraid. long to get in the game. They want to play the game, but they just don't know maybe, I guess, how to bridge, how to get in. It's that it's that beating heart keeps yeah. them from doing it. A lot of them have the skills too, but they just can't control the beating heart. And indeed, we do know that this is a very physiological in nature. Hmm. This isn't a, a learned behavior. It's it's physiological. It's yeah. Is it? What do we do? I mean, because you have to also you know grow up. I can almost hear a dad like grow up and get to class. <laughs> but if if you're shy and you don't want to try something, it's not just that you're not. Being a grown-up, it's you have an aversion, you have a fear, you have you have a physiological response that might be keeping you from doing something. Yeah, let me give you a, uh, an example that maybe uh, individuals who who aren't shy maybe maybe see what it feels like. So, because it has to do with uh, autonomic nervous system, that beating heart, uh, electrical activity in the brain, I could go through mm-hmm. the physiology, but just the best way to understand it is. Uh, picture when you walk into um, a movie theater. Uh, Physiology is normal. Heart rate's yeah. normal. You sit down in the movie theater, and it gets to that scary part yeah. in the movie. Heart rate goes up. Muscles tense. Breathing becomes uh, uh, irregular. So you picture normal going to that state. Well, a shy individual, we know about their physiology. They're normal is that heightened state. Oh. And so then when they go into the movie theater and hit that scary part, it's you can imagine chart. how, yeah, exactly. And that's why you'll see individuals, they want to interact, but when it comes to that moment, uh, their their physiology takes over. And so saying to a shy child or a shy individual, hey, stop being so shy, yeah. it would be like saying to a tall person, hey, stop being so tall. So true. It's not <laughs> happening. And, and so a lot of this is we don't understand it. I mean, we just think, well, everybody's a little, you know, shy. Yeah, you'll grow out of you'll it. You'll grow out of, out of it. Yeah. But then, so if we're not giving them the tools and the insight into what they're going through, through life, I mean, I could see it, you could see it starting to happen in kindergarten. I saw it with one of my children starting to see it in kindergarten. Absolutely. And But they need the tools. They need the skills. Otherwise, you're done with them in high school and you try to send them on to college oh. and they might fall right apart when they hit exactly. adulthood because they don't have the coping skills. And life tends to throw even more curveballs than maybe you know adult life might than than the traditional you know a school system when you're in high school. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the 
the transition to adulthood, everything up to that is just kind of practice. Yeah. But you have to go to school as a child and adolescent. Uh, um, so many uh, – you're not going to work. But that transition to adulthood, you get more – more is required of you, but there's more autonomy so that some individuals could just choose to let the fear overtake them. But in, in, in young adulthood or as I refer to it, emerging adulthood – they need to uh, – they have roommates. They've got to talk to professors, oh, yeah. the, the, the world of dating oh. and romantic relationships, the workplace. They're, the, the context for social interactions now are so varied and so numerous, uh, but the autonomy they have as yeah. well. To hide. To hide, yep. So is it true – I've heard this somewhere where um, – so let's say I, I have this shyness and – I am hiding, and I'm going to college or whatever, but I'm also hiding. I can hardly wait to get back to my dorm. I'm avoiding difficult situations. Um, it seems like the more I avoid, the harder it actually becomes. Does it become like compounding? Because now I've, I haven't gone to class four times, so now it's harder to get the grade I need, but I now need to go talk to the professor. I mean it seems like this would be compounding in my life because I'm so avoidant. Oh, absolutely. That. That's probably the exact reason why we tend to see that shy individuals um, finish their education. It takes longer to finish their education than others. They start careers later than others. Mm. They enter marriage later than others. Everything just, just seems to be delayed. Yeah. Is it – And I guess it's – part of it's – you just need to recognize that. Is that the pattern? We just need to know what we're dealing with and then start gaining tools. Is that how you get through this? That, that's a very important part of it, uh, learning to be able to regulate or control those emotions so they don't uh, keep you from doing the things that you need to do. And, and that starts at a very young age. The analogy that I like to give is if you wanted to teach a child how to swim, well, there are three approaches and two of them would be awful. And <laughs> one is if you just say, hey, you got to learn, so throw a kid in the That's deep end. That's how I learned. The... <laughs> it was thrown in. <clears throat> without a, a deep end of the pool, without a life jacket, yeah. well, there, m- many are going to drown. Uh, just forcing a shy kid out there and saying, you got to do it without giving them yeah. tools, they're going to drown. But if you sit on the uh, edge of the pool, as it were, in the nice, comfy lounge chair and just point out, well, look at how they're doing it, they're likewise never going to learn how to swim. Right. So, you got to walk into the pool with them. You got to get them in the water. I, uh, I talk about challenging but achievable um, uh, approach to this. Have kids do things that, as adults, we may we may think so silly and so easy. But I, I have a very shy daughter, and I would have her hand my money or debit card at, at the store to the cashier. Yeah. I would uh, one. I remember uh, one that really stands out is we were at a fast food place. I, I was with my daughters, and, and this, my shy daughter got uh, the toy in her meal, and, and she said, oh, Dad, I already have this. Uh, would you get me a new one? And I looked at the counter. There was nobody in line, mm-hmm. so I'm not throwing her in the deep right. end of the pool. The person who had helped us had been really kind, and so I said, okay, this is a safe setting for And I looked at her, and I said, nope, if you want it. You'll need to get it. This is what you say. Ah, so and you helped her. You coached jacket. her through it. But then I said, if you want it, you're going to have to do it. I'll never forget. My little girl looked at the counter, looked at her toy, 
looked at me and took the deepest breath that <laughs> any young child's ever inhaled. That's great. And then she went up, and, and when she came back with her toy, her face was flushed. She yeah. was breathing. She uh-huh. had been scared, but I said, did you do it? Yeah. How does it That's feel? Huge. Great. What would you say? So reinforce that. And, and she did it. Challenging so, but achievable. Challenging but achievable because that's how we turn off the autonomic. We have, we have to show the brain that you can do it and you have to show the brain enough that you can do it and no one died. And then I guess the brain will start to learn. Not to react as much about the stuff. Well, you know, you learn how to control that beating heart in the moment. And, yeah, you, you, you learn to have the confidence in yourself that you really That's can. That's powerful. Let's do this. We're speaking with Dr. Larry Nelson here from um, Brigham Young University and the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences. We're talking about shyness and how to move, you know, on to adulthood and how to help our children move through it as well. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back continuing the discussion on shyness right here on The Matt Townsend Show. the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, honored to have Dr. Larry Nelson with us. Larry uh, is from the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences here at uh, Brigham Young University. He's a professor there and uh, has been studying extensively shyness um, and, and the impact it can have on developing young adults, uh, emerging adults. Um, Larry, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. I mean, you see it on campus, too. I just dropped another son off here on campus you know, and you put him in their little dorm room and you think, good luck. <laughs> but he's got to go make everything happen now, right? His yeah. dating, he's got to choose careers. He's got to confront professors. He's got to get a job. If you have any shyness, that is a daunting task. And, and those who aren't shy, they, they don't, just don't They don't understand relate, it. do they? No, they don't. They, In fact, uh, studies show, and I'll, I'll do this in class, I'll say, how many of you uh, think you're kind of shy um, fearful in situations, and I see it in class and in studies show that about sixty-eight to seventy percent of people will say, "Yeah, I'm a little shy." Sixty-eight and, to seventy. percent Yeah, but that's self-report because what's funny is when you ask them, "Well, why do you think that?" and they'll say, "Well, I get nervous speaking in front of people. I get nervous interviewing for a job." And you, and that's when I tell them, I say, "That's normal. That's all. Those normal. are all contexts yeah. where it's normal for your heart to start to beat. Right. Imagine how you feel in that moment, and walk around, and all social settings induce that. Mm-hmm. And that's for the first time they go, "Oh, that's what it must be like." Because oh. if you're not shy, you just you don't get it. You don't get it. My son and I, we always joke about, "Oh, we would just love to kind of be like the dumb jock that has no shyness <laughs> that just." <laughs> Because it just seems like, man, they can say anything. They can do anything they want. And it doesn't even dawn, it doesn't even dawn on them that this is a nerve-wracking moment. Yeah. It, and that's why it's so hard. And it starts to take its toll. What's, what's sad and needs to be understood is the more that we, that we, we treat our kids like that, just snap out of it. Just yeah. stop it. Buck just up. get out there and right. do it. Yeah. Now they start to not only experience the physiology, the beating heart, but then they start to uh, think about themselves. I, you know, I'm, I'm not that good. Yeah, I rejection. can't do things. Yeah. Um, and they just, 
So now you have not only the physiology, but the mindset that I can't do it. And, right. And that's, it's so hard. What do we do? And Larry, we'll have to have you back to go in depth on this because this, this doesn't go away. And, <laughs> and I mean, I, I always thought, like I always heard that introverts are about 50% of the population might see themselves as introversion or introverted. But we live in a, we, in the U.S., we live in a very kind of extroverted culture. Oh, yeah. So all of a sudden, you just seem strange <laughs> if you're not outgoing and loud and bombastic and it's, it's hard. So what do we do? What do you suggest parents do who are raising shy children, especially as they're getting to that age where they now need to kind of emerge and go on their own? Yeah. Well, again, start early. Start with those challenging but achievable. Starting with young kids, I would do things. I would make sure that I would invite friends, um, other kids over to your house. So there's that um, challenging. There are going to be people. You're going to be in a social setting. But achievable is that it's in the familiar context of your home Yeah. Uh, as opposed to them going over and maybe the family has a dog. And so that dog's going to make them afraid or big brother's around with his friends and and so challenging but achievable. Um, I always make my uh, made my shy daughter when uh, she was growing up at the restaurant. If she wanted to eat, she had to order it. Yeah, but oh, before yeah. the server got there, we would talk about what are you going to say so she was prepared, but <laughs> she had to do it. Yeah, let them lead. Don't steal their turn or you, you're actually enabling. Yeah, actually, actually uh, our research shows that, that – the natural response of parents of shy kids is when they see their child in distress, good loving parents, yeah. say, up. okay, step yeah. up, I'll do it. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. You don't need yeah. to. And that just, that doesn't help them learn the skills that they need. By the same token, though, you can't just turn around, throw them in the deep no, end. No, you that, have that to coach pool. them, get them skilled up. Work with them and then let them do it. So if you if you start that at younger ages and throughout adolescence um, and then help the uh, the emerging adult, the young adult, start to see, I'm not always going to be here. What can you start to do to take those challenging but achievable steps? And um, so important because we see challenges, if not, they they get themselves in predicaments, as as we talked about previously, but again, where maybe then now they're not doing well in school. Right. I, I have a friend who, she had an A in a class, uh, but uh, the final project was a class presentation. Uh, she actually took fit. a lower grade because she wouldn't do it Yeah, um, because of that. So they may find themselves um, not doing well in school. They might we, we find that their relationships, romantic relationships, and then marriages, they're not as happy in them. They're not as satisfied. We saw it with friendships mm-hmm. earlier. And, and what I think is going on both with friendships and adolescence and then uh, – romantic relationships is they get into these relationships and then as happens frequently you realize this isn't really yeah. what I what I want but then they have a choice well I can stay here and not be as happy as I could be but I'm familiar with right. it or the alternative is I got to go back out and yeah. start all over and many many will decide just, I'll stay here. Just stay here. This, this, is this I know. Yeah. And so you can see how this, without some intervention, without some self-awareness, without those regu- uh, tools to regulate the, the fear and anxiety, could lead into some challenging circumstances. Oh, it And I see it. I see it in my own kid. Um, okay. We're going to have you back. We, we could do a whole 
40 minutes on this subject. I um, love it. Appreciate you being here, Larry, because it yeah. really is it's it's important. And they can find out more. Um, we'll, we'll post uh, one of your articles on um, on our on our Twitter page as Great. well. And uh, again, Dr. Larry Nelson, we'll have him back to continue this discussion about shyness, how to break down those barriers. Uh, it's it's huge, folks. It's, have some compassion. Don't just tell your kid to buck up. Come on, ask a girl out. Understand there might be going more going on underneath. Um, the whole problem there. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll come back, visit our our non-shy BYU Sports Nation uh, hosts, Spencer and Jerem, up next. Find out what's coming up on their show in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Neat. Do you guys want to? <laughs> do you want to ride your bicycles? Nah. It's nah. Old man. Are you freezing? Even the, with that uh, big stash on your lip? Yes. Yeah, I, I I said I would keep it until the men's basketball team lost. I know they you don't keep play st- until tomorrow. I know, but I, they're going to win tomorrow. If they do, then I'll keep the stand. I'll bet your stash on it. I already have. <laughs> if BYU wins at Gonzaga tomorrow, Jerem will have that mustache, I predict, for, Good a, for a very while. long time. Here's what's going to happen. If they win tomorrow against Gonzaga on the road, that would be a tremendous, awesome win for BYU uh, because they would be tied for first in the West Coast Conference. They would have that really good road win they would need for the NCAA tournament and such. Okay? And such. But – but Friday, I would probably toss out on Twitter, do you want a, a, a poll? Do you want me to keep the sash until BYU loses, or do you want me to shave it now? I, no. I would just, I would be interested in seeing the results. No one's going to want you to shave it now. No, they're, <laughs> I mean, I like think, I said, they're, you're not the one walking around with it. Let me, let me just give People you People talk, man. People feel like they can say anything to me sometimes. <laughs> like, like so, excuse me, you just said what? You did what? Okay, I got an idea. If you really want something to put on the poll, say, look, do you want me to shave it or do you want me to leave it? Or should I just shave off one inch from the right side and one inch from the left side but leave a little middle stash? That's not happening. See how that goes down. I wouldn't give the people that option. <laughs> that would be great television, though. Would it? That get, would cause quite the uproar. Can you imagine? That would be bigger than what Chris Goviak said. I don't know that that fits within the yeah the the well groomed standards of Brigham. I think you're right. Hey, question: You guys didn't hear about the Rams moving, did you? Los Angeles Rams. Who? A you what? mean the St. Louis Rams? The Mountain Goats? The, the soon-to-be Los Angeles Rams. Yes, the soon-to-be Los Is Angeles Rams. Is that not Rams. cool? You were a Ram fan, or weren't you, Spence? Will they be Spence? the Inglewood Ingle Rams of Anaheim? Oh, no way. They're going to call them that? Of LA? No, no. It's kidding. going to be the LA Rams for they the second better, time. For sure. They were already the LA Rams. I know. It's part of their history. They were my favorite team. Can you name... They were your favorite team? Pat Hayden. Four, can you name at least four players that starred on the LA Rams? And I will determine if they were stars or not. Back then? Yes. Uh, Pat Hayden. Okay, Pat Hayden. Jack Youngblood. Jack Youngblood. Very good. And he had a brother, twin brother, like John Youngblood or something. Not a a star. Oh. Um, Who else? All I cared about was Pat Hayden. He was my man. How about Merlin Olsen? (gasps) Merlin Flippin' Olsen. 
He was Willie a star. Anderson. Oh my Eric heavens. Dickerson. Yes. Kay. Jim Everett. Not none, a star. None, none, none of these guys are still Jim playing. Rome? Jim Rome. <laughs> I don't All think Jim stars Rome. of the L.A. Rams. See, I remember. You were a big fan. This is big news. It's big for L.A. because traffic just gets that much better. I know. Woo! That'll be so – now you can wait, but you can listen to the Ram football <laughs> On the radio now yes. instead of being there on time. It's so great. Hey, um, did you guys uh, – you're doing your show today, the show thingy that you do. Mm-hmm. Anything – any new news going on? Well, we hate to be the bearer of unfortunate news, but it looks like what what was once very hopeful for BYU's chances, per se, to get into the Big 12 oh boy. have now taken a big shot. What? Uh, looks like the Big 12 is going to get its way and be able to host a conference championship game without having to expand to 12 teams. Oh, blasted. Really? So the details of why that is happening... And if there is any shot that the vote today will still go the way that BYU would hope. Yeah. Prayers. There's still time. We need a prayer. We need a prayer. Um, what do they call it? Like, we need everyone to just pray for it. Prayer circle? Prayer, well, yeah, something like that. Don't you think? <laughs> like, if, the faith, if the faithful can't make this happen, then God does not want this in the Big 12. That's what I hear. <laughs> Jeremy, why does God have to be involved in sports? Jeremy's head's going to explode right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> His head's no, going it's, to explode. It's, if you're BYU, just worry about what you can yeah. can control. Right. Be a be a viable product. Continue to have a good brand. Avoid punching people. <laughs> uh, you know, stuff be, like that. Be who you are, which is traditionally a winning program. You know, in football and basketball, it'd be nice if BYU validated independence and had a an 11 win season at some point. Plus, that would be huge right? because right then, then yeah. yeah, then you're nine, nine is nice, but you're not getting real relevance out of that. Mm-hmm. You would need ten plus, probably eleven. You'd need to be in the New Year's Six conversation, not necessarily in one, but to really validate what BYU is doing. Because if you go eight or nine wins every year, I, I'm not sure how is that any better or different than nationally the way you're perceived being in a different conference. Yes, I know you're on ESPN more, but as, your perception as a program hasn't changed unless you. Do something really good with that. You play harder teams and you win. Now you're growing. Yeah, now you're talking. That's good. See, that's great advice from the man with the stash. I'm so much more wise now. I think you are. You seem older. You seem kind of edgier, too. I'm so mature. Yeah. You just, it it always, Spencer always sounded like the the older man. But now you sound older than Spencer. Sounded like the older man? Wow. On the show. You just like older. You know, I am older. More seasoned. Holder. Holder, um, no, but now you sound like the the wise man, the old wily <laughs> veteran, Jerome Jordan, Jerome Jordan. Hey, did you guys hear about the storm tro- stormtrooper that was arrested, Salem, Massachusetts? The principal called nine one one to report a man with a gun walking around outside the school. The man was identified as George Cross because he was dressed in a white plastic Star Wars Stormtrooper costume, and the gun was not real. What in the world? Why? Just don't. Don't, don't do stupid things. He was, tr- he was a helpful Stormtrooper trying to help the kids to school. <sighs> that doesn't look creepy at all. Yeah, no. Hey, kids. <laughs> Come over here. <laughs> Come look at my Stormtrooper outfit. <laughs> 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 That's... 
This combo is getting weird for me. so sketchy. Cross was arrested on charges of disturbing a school and loitering within 1,000 feet of a school with a, a phaser-type gun. As he probably should have been. Okay, don't, make, don't mix Star Trek and Star Wars. Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. What's Phaser the gun? What, Star Trek. What's the it's gun that? What's the gun that the guys in Star Wars use? A ray gun. A blaster. Blaster. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jeez. Exactly. Holy. I don't know. I don't cow. know. Jaron would know that. The nerd alert in me. It's a, bla- <laughs> it's a blaster. <laughs> it's not a phaser. It's a blaster. <laughs> Dude, that stash suits you. Hey, um, <laughs> so it sounds like you're gonna have a great show. I'll let you go. I don't want to interrupt. I know you got to go put your phaser on phase or your blaster on on stun mode. <laughs> Is that is that such a thing? <laughs> is that a thing, Jerem? Jerem went quiet. Is on there me. a stun mode for a blaster? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I just, I just, I'm just trying to keep you guys honest. Does he still sound older when he goes nerd mode? No, he doesn't. He just sounds nerdy. <laughs> but it's a good nerd. It's a totally good nerd, I must say. Well, guys, Whoa! have a. <laughs> oh, there he goes. Is that R two? That is R two. Oh, I love R two D two. You guys, never a dull moment with you two. <laughs> okay, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thanks, go, sir. Go figure out a way for the Big 12 maybe to still happen. Whatever. Out of our control, not worried about. That's right. Forgot. Sorry, Grandpa. <sighs> anyway, have a great show. Knock them we'll dead. We'll do. We'll do, yo. Over and out. Um, good stuff. Man, by the way, Ben, make a note. Do not ever interchange b- Blaster with Phaser. Two different shows. And... It will totally upset the geekdom of the world. <laughs> Scary. Hey, spiders, by the way, uh, are helping criminals. Can you believe this? A town in eastern England is caught in a web of crime as the spiders keep spinning their webs right over the lens of the CCTV cameras. Closed circuit television. So that makes it so the thieves now can just go and wander around the town and make mischief. The subcommittee was told that the CCTV across the city is covered in spider silk. It was agreed that the town clerk will be responsible for checking the cameras from the council office once a week to ensure that they can transmit a clear message. By the way, it seems like a sign that Spider-Man's in town. That gives me the chills. Man! That's some scary stuff. Hey, uh, one more uh, just little update for you. Um, tonight at about, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, you get a chance to win $1.5 billion if you've joined the great public uh, gambling fest that is the lottery. So, you know, just for pretty much all of you, sorry you lost. For the one person that wins... You now have a one a billionaire with one point five billion dollars somewhere. You know, someone might win today. Yeah, Benny. So an idea. Oh boy, what? A ticket costs two dollars. Yeah. And you have one in three hundred million chance. Chance. Yeah. So just buy three hundred million tickets. Brilliant. Win one point five billion. Yeah, that's you know that would cost you. Six hundred million dollars. Yeah, so you get half of it. There's also a chance that they've sold, you know, half a billion tickets, so you could still lose. 
I mean, your assumption, I guess, is that you would get your money back because you'd win. Yes. But if you put $600 million out there and lose? That kind of stink, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know how many tickets they've sold, but I'm not here to teach economics. Here's a hero story for you. We always like to end with a positive note. Uh, the hero is a 19-year-old Northern Virginia woman. She's being hailed as a hero after she lifted a pickup truck off of her father and saved her family from a fire. Charlotte's father, Eric Heffelmeyer, was working on an old truck in the garage of their family's home when the jack he used slipped. The man was instantly pinned beneath the huge vehicle, and the garage had caught on fire. Propane tanks were exploding. The entire structure was burning, and Heffelmeyer was stuck underneath the truck. He struggled for 10 minutes until an open door and his daughter Charlotte ran out. Five foot six, 120 pound Charlotte, barefoot. She was an ex pole vaulter, started lifting the entire truck. Once Charlotte had lifted the truck off her father and pulled him out, she realized the truck's gas tank would explode if uh, they they if they were left in the burning garage. She jumped in the driver's seat and gunned the truck out of the garage on its three remaining wheels. Charlotte then grabbed a garden hose and started to spray down the house before firefighters arrived. Charlotte's grandmother and three-month-old niece were able to escape the home as well. Charlotte suffered burns on her feet and her hands, and her back injury has kept her from returning to the Air Force Academy. However, she was presented with a Citizen Life-Saving Award on Thursday by Fairfax County Fire Department. Holy cow. Charlotte Heffelmeyer, you are the hero of the day. Holy cow. Thought about it all. It's what it takes, folks. You don't need a superhero. Sometimes you just need a daughter that knows how to get stuff done, uh, saving lives and uh, her, her father. And smart. Congrats to her. We'll take, uh, that's it, folks. That's the show. She's our hero of the day. We're going to leave it with that. Remember, you're all heroes to us. Just making it through life, that's a tough thing in and of itself. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more tools, more ideas to live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care of each other. Watch each other's back and uh, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.